welcome to the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast, the podcast that helps you find solutions for your weight concerns that will last a lifetime. You've got this. This podcast contains general educational information on weight loss for physicians. I am not providing medical advice and listening to this podcast does not create a physician-patient relationship. This podcast does not replace a need for consultation with a licensed professional and no information should be relied upon unless you have obtained specific advice or treatment from myself or another physician. Please review the terms and conditions located at www.weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca before continuing. Welcome to episode 88 of the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Siobhan Key. Thanks for joining me today. I have a super great interview for you today with the very one and only Dr. Veer Tarman, who was one of the, or actually the first person I interviewed on this podcast. If you haven't checked out that initial interview, definitely check it out. Uh, Dr. Tarman is well known in the area of food addiction. Uh, she treats food addiction, and she's the author of the book Food Junkies, which is in its uh, second edition. Uh, it's a great book if you feel like you struggle with food addiction to check out. I asked Dr. Tarman back on because I think food addiction is a really important topic to keep talking about. Uh, if you have been listening to the podcast, you know I have had Dr. Ifland on uh, twice now as well, and uh, I think it's one of those topics to just keep talking about. I know a lot of people identify with the concept that they might have some addictive behavior towards food. Um, and what we're going to be talking about today with Dr. Tarman is how do you know if that's a food addiction or if that's something else on the spectrum of like emotional and, and binge eating? How do you differentiate them? Um, and I think that's a really important topic. The biggest reason why I keep addressing these topics is food addiction and binge eating both are filled with so much shame and it, it really impacts people's lives. And if you are dealing with either of those issues, you probably know that. You know that your life is impacted by it. There are things you don't do because of it. Um, and often thoughts about these can fill your thoughts for a good portion of the day. And so I think it's really important to have good quality discussions where you can learn about it, educate yourself and help start getting control over uh, these issues. So we'll get to the interview very shortly. Uh, but first, I just want to remind you that I will be enrolling another group of my Stress Eating SOS program in the fall. I don't have the exact dates on when enrollment will start. Uh, but if you want to be notified as soon as it opens, then head over and get on the wait list. So weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca forward slash SOS so that you're one of the first to be notified. Uh, I just wrapped up the last session at the beginning of July with my group um, and I loved it. And the people in the group, I think, found it very helpful and really enjoyed the six-week program uh, that we did. And I heard from lots of them how helpful they found it to be to be in a group environment. I know for a lot of us, when we struggle with things like stress eating or binge eating, it can feel really uncomfortable to be in a group. It can feel like all the secrets might be exposed that you've held on for so tightly. But it can also be a real relief when you realize 
you're not alone. Everybody else or a lot of other people are dealing with those same secrets. A lot of other highly educated physicians who have everything else together in their life as well are also still trying to figure out how to manage their eating or how to manage their binge eating um, or how to deal with a food addiction. So the group, the power in the group is learning from each other and having that communal support, uh, which I really loved in the group that we just finished. So make sure if you think that would be helpful that you head over and get on the wait list. The other option, as as always, is working with me one-on-one. That is a limited option in that I only have a limited amount of availability for um, how many one-on-one clients I can have at any time. You're welcome to head on over to weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca, click on the work with me tab and book a one-on-one session to talk about what one-on-one private coaching would look like for you for your specific issues. All right, guys, let us get into that interview. All right, welcome back to the podcast, Vera. You have the, I think, distinction of number one being the very first interview that I did, and then also the first repeat interview that I can think of. I'm pretty sure. There you go. All right. We are talking food addiction. And if anybody listening hasn't listened, if you go back to, I think it was maybe episode four, one of the very first episodes, you can hear Vera talk about the background of food addiction and the science behind it. What we're going to talk about today is more of the practical side of it. Um, And so take it away, Vera. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate getting a chance to speak again. So just for people in case they didn't uh, listen or don't remember, um, I'm a a physician that works at Renaissance, which is a a drug and alcohol treatment center in Toronto. And uh, uh, because of my work in addictions, I was able to really flex my uh, interest in the addiction of food uh, at Renaissance because I saw it all over and also just by virtue of being in addiction, I see it everywhere now. I mean, it's, you know, it's the glasses that I wear, so I notice it everywhere. Um, and in the first part of the uh, uh, the podcast, I talked about um, the science of food addiction, you know, uh, what what is the basis of what we understand with food addiction? Does it exist? And usually when we talk, <coughs> excuse me, about food addiction, we're talking sugar addiction and flour addiction, not all foods. Um, although that becomes an issue, and that's part of what I want to talk about today. But initially, it's always, uh, no, not all foods. It's sugar and it's flour. And there's a lot of research now that, that points to that, implicates uh, sugar. Not necessarily, um, we don't have a lot of clinical data yet. We have a lot of sort of rat data and, and uh, sort of um, experimental science data that um, shows that uh, sugar is addictive. Um, and then a lot of clinical work that shows that it is uh, addictive in the uh, uh, sort of practical, you know, in our work population. But uh, that uh, transition from experimental research um, uh, into clinical, um, the clinical world is what, where we are right now. We're still struggling with how to diagnose food addiction. Um, so it's very hard until we do that to actually study the manifestation of it. So what I'm going to talk about today, I'd like to propose to talk about is the clinical syndrome as I observe it in my work um, uh, and, you know, with, with people that, that, that I deal with. Uh, what does it look like? What does it feel like? What do we do about it? Um, not so much the science, because as I said, we're not, we're, we're 
I'm kind of talking ahead of the game because we're not quite there yet. Um, so I, I really want people to understand that. Um, so the, the first thing that's really important uh, is, uh, you know, how do we diagnose it? How do I know if I have food addiction? Um, because, you know, we could talk about eating disorders, uh, food uh, disorders, eating uh, disorders of eating, because this uh, eating disorder has its own specific uh, um, diagnosis. Uh, you know, what are the various disorders of eating? I know I have a disorder of eating, uh, but, uh, you know, what, where does it belong? Um, and, uh, you know, when I talk about food addiction and the people in my uh, area that treat food addiction, we have specific guidelines that we use. We follow the, the uh, DSM-5 uh, for um, addiction and uh, you know, just plug in food instead of something else. Um, there is an actual tool called the Yale um, uh, Food Addiction Inventory that's based on the DSM-4 and it's actually been updated so that there's a DSM-5 version as well. And, but that's just a tool capturing those very criteria um, for substance mm -hmm. abuse. It's just one of a number of tools. It's, it's the one that um, I would recommend that you use if you want to do any kind of study or comparison because it's the one that we use. It's the, the closest to being peer approved, um, uh, peer stamp approval, uh, you know, with, with research. Um, uh, but, you know, it's not the greatest tool to use with patients because the language is a little bit scientific. I want to say archaic or clumsy, like often scientific language is. So it's not the best. I actually like using the DSM-5 criteria instead, knowing that both of them are, you know, coming from the same place. But anyway, the, the point is we're, we're essentially looking at uh, a, a list of, I mean, the DSM-5 is um, 11, you know, a, 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 a span of 11 criteria, but I kind of break it down into four or five um, areas or categories. And if you fulfill all of those areas and categories, then we're going to say that you have a likelihood of a food addiction, like you score high on that scale. Mm -hmm. But and I, and I can talk a little bit about what those criteria are, um, but I do want to say they look an awful lot like binge eating disorder. So I want to get back to that point too. Yeah, which that'll be interesting because the way yeah. I kind of think of like binge eating and food addiction is there there's so there's similarities yeah. and they're on a similar spectrum they are yes um, and there's probably overlap too like a, oh my god yes so overlap in, in the actual condition and then certainly in the appearance of it it makes it very difficult to get past that stage in research but so so the criteria the general criteria is we're always looking for does the person have um a craving for something uh, which then ultimately, as as the condition um, progresses, becomes an obsession. So you know mm -hmm. you're thinking about it even when you're doing other things. It's sort of. I think that's a really good way of describing it because some people, when we talk about this, are like, "Okay, but I crave food. Does that mean I'm addicted to the food?" But that yeah. obsessive quality where your brain won't let it go. It won't let it go, and it, it interferes with other thinking. So yeah. that you can thinking about something else, but it's always there, kind of in the background getting louder and then quieter, whatever is happening. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, so that um, uh, craving slash ultimately obsession would, would be like a, a major piece of, of in, in information. And then the second one would be, um, are you able to control your use? Because, you know, the whole idea is, yes, I know I have a problem, but I can manage it. Um, not that I have a problem. I know I like sugar, but I can manage it. Or I can, you know, just have a few. And uh, what ends up happening with any addiction is you always think you can, but you can't. Like you, 
-hmm. you may be able to initially control the amount, but it's usually more than you intended and you're using it for longer than you intended. So there's, there's that kind of slippery quality where it's getting out of your control. Now, how do you different? Cause that, that's one of the criteria I find harder in that that can apply to so many people. Yeah. You know, well, almost anybody who's tried to lose weight, right? Like th there's times where you think you're going to have one chip, say, yes, the bag's gone. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, is it that there's just so many people that have this, the addictive behavior towards food, or is it more like, I, I guess these overlap more that certain foods have that addictive well, kind of control they, over our brain. They, like they do because the food industry has made it so. Yeah. Um, so that, that's why we have this scale, uh, you know, the food addiction inventory um, and also the DSM-5 and 4 have this sort of scale. So one or two of those things won't really be enough or we could say mild. Like I think that if we're eating 20th century food or 21st century food, we're all of us budding food addicts because the food industry is doing that to us in the same way as if we were all smoking cigarettes, we'd be on some level of the nicotine dependency spectrum from either just having a few to whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so, so there's uh, that piece, you can't control it. And then, and then there's the piece where, um, uh, is it causing impairment? Is it causing damage, uh, you know, to social roles? You know, I, I don't want to go out because I'd rather be at home with my, my, my tub of haagen and Netflix. Um, I, I can't even go to work because I'm so sick from the binge last night. You know, it's affecting life in some way. That's the third mm -hmm. criteria, which inevitably happens. It's it, first you don't notice it because you know you do some you cancel something so that you can eat instead, and then uh, you start choosing friends who are your food buddies and not your other ones, not the healthy people who are just going to lecture you, and you know it just it, it insidiously continues on. Um, and then the next criteria would be you you actually can't stop. You keep trying to stop and you can't, or you might last, but then it doesn't. Uh, uh, carry on that the stopping doesn't continue on um, so that's sort of the fourth criteria um, and I guess the fifth one is like any other addiction uh, there is a level of denial I'm not really it's not the problem is getting bigger and bigger but we continually almost as a cognitive bias try to diminish the effects the, the, the danger the damage um, yes, I know I have a problem with uh, sugar, but I'll stop tomorrow. It's not that much of a problem. I just have to use my willpower, something like that. The, the mm -hmm. recognition that I am, I have a problem. I've got diabetes, my weight is out of control, and I really can't do anything about this um, is usually later on in the game. So though all of those criteria are what we look for with our various questions. And now to get to the, the, the crux of the matter, it looks an awful lot like an eating disorder, like a binge eating disorder. Um, and the DSM-5 um, committees, when they were coming, um, you know, meeting whenever that was 10 years ago or whenever it was, and the DSM-5 did actually approve of binge eating disorder at that time. Um, they, they did not approve of food addiction, although those, those advocates were on the floors too, but we could not de, uh, distinguish the difference because it looks so much the same. And mm -hmm. even to this day, I, I know that I, I, I'm aware of some of my uh, colleagues who are now getting together because there's gonna be a DSM-5R or a DSM-6, I'm not sure which, uh, but there's gonna be some kind of revision coming up. 
Um, and uh, we're still stuck with the same question. How are we going to prove that this is a, di a different animal than a binge eating disorder? And the only thing that we can come up with is that um, uh, if a person has an eating disorder, that's understood to be a psychological dilemma, like um, you're using food to comfort other distress, previous trauma, um, uh, need to control because you can't control life out there in the world. You're using food in some way that if you could resolve that psychic trauma, then the food would be fine. And with mm -hmm. food addiction, we say, no, it doesn't matter what it, you can be happy, sad, glad, mad, doesn't matter. You're still going to eat and be obsessed. And, and you, you know, you're obsessed with it, you're happy or you're, you're sad. It's, it's the actual ingredient that triggers the, what we call the phenomena of craving, the dopamine surge. Um, yeah. The, the dopamine um, hypersensitivity is what I like to say. Um, so it's an actual physiological phenomena. How do you know that until not, it's unfortunately not at the get-go because everything looks the same. It's the treatment. It's the aftermath. If after I've done the therapy, the cognitive therapy, the mindful eating, the raisin staring at it and, you know, can I eat it slowly? <laughs> uh, but I'm still struggling. Um, then I would say, let's see if it's a food addiction. Uh, and so now we're going to try an entirely different program, which is all of those things are good, but they're not going to stop the eating. We have to re identify the trigger, remove it, and then wait for the craving to um, um, settle. Settle. I mean, it doesn't ever really go away, but it gets quiet because you don't have that thing uh, that keeps, keeps it alive and feeds it, which usually takes, in, in other words, you have to go through withdrawal. Um, and then uh, in two or three weeks, you start to feel better, and then the craving is quiet until you pick up the substance again. And if you can identify with that, yes, I was good, but the moment I had a little bit, I wanted it again, then we would say, that's a sure sign, not of a binge eating, but something physiological has just happened. You know, you, you, you put the oil on the fire, you've turned on, you've done something, which we say you ignited the uh, phenomena of craving, you've ignited the dopamine phase mm -hmm. and that's a that's suggestive of food addiction so that's really you know that approach of defining the two because i've struggled with that too okay which is yeah. it and does it matter which one it is good question um you know that's a good approach is that the all the you know underlying work helps binge eating and, and those patterns but it doesn't help the physiological addiction craving. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And and so um, it doesn't matter um, initially because you're trying to figure it out. But then ultimately it really matters because with with the binge eating uh, a platform of therapy, it's always fix the problem and then go back to normal eating, which means eating the trigger foods, but in moderation. And of course, with food addiction, right. that will just start the whole thing up again. So that's where it becomes really important to make that diagnosis. But you have to be patient. In the addiction world, we say you have to go out and do your research. In other words, the alcoholic who says, but I can still drink. OK, go out and try and then come back when you know you can't. And similarly here, it's it's unfortunately, mm -hmm. we don't yet have a tool to capture that initially. Yeah. But there's a lot of suggestions. You know, do you have a history of addiction elsewhere? family history do you have a history of diets where you've done the the uh, uh you know abstinence and then felt great and then picked up a little bit because you were doing well and then you went right back again i mean you've you probably have proof already in your history 
Yeah. And I think that one resonates a lot with people when I talk to them about uh, food addiction, right? Like that feeling of it just took a little bit and it was right back. Yeah. And it's similar yeah. with smoking too, right? The same yes. thing, the first cigarette. Yes. That's right. Years after you quit can just trigger it all again. It can just trigger it all again. And then what happens then is, um, uh, and here's in a way where we can say this is a chronic progressive illness, um, is it seems to be worse. It's there. And all of a sudden now, you know, I was smoking a pack a day uh, and now I'm smoking a pack and a half a day. How did that happen? You know, uh, mm -hmm. why, why didn't I start? And, you know, it took me years to get to that pack a day. Why didn't it take me years to get back to that again? You know, you're back to your pack a day right away or you're back to the binge, maybe not immediately, but within a month for mm -hmm. sure. And we see that with all sorts of addiction, you know, it may slowly um, build up, but then all of a sudden it's right back. And that's when we see people in, in treatment again. Um, and uh, I think that that's just an indication, you know, addiction is such, any kind of addiction, it's such a complex um, phenomenon of physiological, like I've been talking about, um, uh, behavioral, uh, operational conditioning type thing, you know, when I feel distressed and I use something, I feel better. I mean, you know, that learning is under, we don't forget that learning, you know, that, that's, that's heavy, that, that's because we're experiencing something that is so out of the norm. I mean, there's nowhere in nature that crack is mimicked, nowhere. There's nowhere in nature that sugar is mimicked. You know, we, we mm -hmm. normalize it so much, but it's actually not normal. Not, not refined sugar in the way that uh, we eat it now. Um, and, uh, you know, th that kind of memory um, is, we don't forget that. So it's very easy to pick it up again. I, I like to use the term kindling. It's like once a person has had a seizure, there's been a kindling process and it's pretty, not that, it, 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 you become more likely to have another seizure. And, and I think that we can use the same kind of analogy with um, addiction of any kind, once you've been introduced to a substance, even when it's quiet, you reintroduce it and you're more likely to get it. And I think each time you relapse, that just builds and builds and builds. Maybe we could call that learned helplessness in, in the language of operational conditioning. I don't know, but there's many ways to understand addiction. You know, yeah. it's so complex. And, and that's interesting. So from a practical standpoint, yes. if somebody's listening and thinking, wait, that's me. <laughs> I recognize things yeah. in what you're saying. What should they do? What would be well, their next steps? I, I would say that um, uh, one one thing is if we if we take the um, understanding of addiction, now we're suddenly given a whole bunch of uh, tools that we weren't before, like with a binge eating or just normal eating gone awry. And so um, uh, the first thing will be, well, this is an addiction, and um, uh, so there's a phenomenon of cravings. I, I've taken a substance and I've opened it up. Um, and when I put it down, first of all, this is the reason why abstinence is so important. Um, so practically speaking, the first thing that's really important is to define what are the trigger foods that need to be called abstinent. So refined sugar, for sure. Most likely flour, because that's a refined carb. That's now a super simple carb, almost sugar. And then... Um, uh, well, so, so that's the first thing. What are the triggers? And then now I have to abstain from them because I'm using the addiction platform and that's what that says. And then, then secondly, 
um, we know that every time a person relapses, it comes back right away and often worse. So I don't want to relapse. <laughs> this is, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to go through withdrawal, which is that two or three weeks, which by the way, that's a really good thing to know that, that it's not like you're going to struggle like this the rest of your life. It's just, you know, we call it, if I say to somebody, I want you to stop sugar, you know, they're going to pull out their hair and go, how can I do that? I'm saying you only need to do that for three weeks. Actually, we say one day at a time for three weeks, and then it becomes easy. Um, uh, so, so just knowing that, and we know that because we're using an addiction platform that works for everything. And what and, is what do you warn people about for withdrawal? Like, what would people expect to experience? Uh, well, they would number one expect to, um, to experience cravings, want wanting it, and it's going to be at their weakest times. Just think of any other addiction, which is often in the night, in the evening. Mm-hmm. When did they use the food to comfort themselves? And, you know, you could say it was comfort eating, but it could have been that that person was going into withdrawal then. And so it was just self-medicating them. And that, you know, in two or three weeks, they won't need that anymore. They won't need to self-medicate because they won't be going in withdrawal. But so insomnia, agitation, um, a, a real sense of panic. Like, how will I live without my crutch, my friend, my thing that's going to get me through the night? Um, uh, so a lot of anxiety, um, some people will say I'm feeling deprived and, you know, people who don't believe in the food addiction model will say, you're just going to make the person deprived and then they're going to eat even more. And I say to that, yes, because that's part of the pause post-acute withdrawal syndrome. And if they get past that, then they won't. They won't actually feel deprived anymore. Most mm-hmm. people who have gotten over that hump don't feel deprived anymore. Um, so having the addiction framework will tell you that. So that's the first thing. I have to abstain. And hard as it is, that that pause, post-acute withdrawal, which actually might even be um, not just an insomnia. And uh, uh, it might even be like if you've had a major binge the night before, diarrhea, uh, um, you know, stomach cramps, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It can be physical as well as um, uh, mental. The shaky too would be a physical yeah. thing too coming out. <clears throat> Headaches. Yes. And so then that passes in a few weeks. Yeah. Um, and then, um, uh, you know, a quiet happens. And I see this happening a lot. People get really good. And if they didn't pick up again, that would be the end of the story. But the picking up again is the next piece. So number yeah. two practical thing is um, uh, the addictive platform will tell you we have an addictive mind that will make us think it's okay to pick up this food again this is that denial piece let's talk about why like in what ways are that addictive part of your brain makes you think it's okay because they're sneaky yeah we call it stinking thinking in the addiction world we say that it's cunning baffling and powerful and part of it is because um Uh, That part of the brain, that's in the limbic system, which is our emotional motivational center, right? uh, Dopamine is our motivator, and it has been hijacked. So if you think about it, uh, my most motivated part of me has been hijacked by a drug or sugar. And so I'm now dealing with uh, me, Vera, the most cunning and and, uh, um, motivated because I'm hijacked by sugar, um, and I'm dealing... Uh, with myself, my own thinking process, which has been uh, taken over to pick up this substance. So it's kind of like this inner monster that's taken over and it's using me to uh, um, talk myself into using again. 
it, it's because it's taken over my dopamine motivated motivational system. So it's uh, if you start getting thoughts and you know in the addiction uh, counseling um, that we do, it's things like what are the lies that you tell yourself? Like you start to identify them. You know, in the same way as you do uh, anxiety management or anger management. What are my angry thoughts? What are my frightening thoughts? So that you can learn to identify them and basically not listen to them. We want to learn what are the lies. So as a doctor, I might say. Oh, don't be silly. Sugar is not addictive, or I can't be different than other people and stand up. I mean, you'll come up with something. I think that normalness, yes, one is a big one. Like I should be able to eat what everybody else eats. Yes, yes. Which is, you know, the the sugar industry very cleverly has normalized the food that we're eating today, and not only the, the, that, but the the way that we eat it, you know, all the time. Um, you know, with every meal, we have some sort of sweet and all that sort of thing. It's completely not. You think about a different time period a hundred years ago we, that would have been just not normal at all but we've normalized that um so yeah that's th those kinds of thoughts would be um uh that so you know tools practical things recognize that there is a post-acute withdrawal and it does pass recognize that you're going to have lies that you tell yourself right and then and 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 um the third thing i guess i would say um is if you uh, slip, um, it, it, I don't, I can't really explain except in the context of neurons that fire together, wire together, and, and um, in the context of learned helplessness. But each time you relapse, it seems to get harder to get on the wagon and clean up again. Um, this is with everything that we see. It's doable. Like people who have quit smoking 10 times finally do it. But the ones who quit the first time Usually, it's usually you either do it or you have to do it on multiple, multiple times. Try to give yourself a break and go with the first time and just believe it um, is what I would say because it does seem to get harder all the time. Um, so what should we like? What should people do when if they're trying to just do it and just not have that relapse, not have that first bite? Yeah. When all that thinking comes up, when the lies come up, what should yeah. they do about it? Well, in the addiction world, we, we uh, really, really emphasize the fact that you can't do this alone because you're doing what you're doing alone is using that part of you that's not motivated, the frontal lobe, the, uh, you know, your cognitive capacities, which get hijacked by something that at that particular moment in time is stronger than you. So just like I'm not going to tell a person who's having a panic attack, you know, get over it, stop. I'm instead going to give them tools like, you know, here's how you ground yourself. Um, um, which is essentially the tools that we do. So when I'm having this, don't just say, I've just got to stop. I'm I, Whatever it is that's going to ground you, it might be uh, to call somebody to, um, I, I don't know, there's lots of things that people do, do a meditation. Uh, I, I like the idea of um, calling people and just saying, I'm having a really hard time. You don't have to be on the phone all night. It's, it's like a panic attack. It lasts about 20 minutes, you know? Once you're settled, you know, everything comes back and your willpower is back and you're good. But when you're hooked at that moment, it's a, probably about a 20, it's like a panic attack. It's a 20 minute craving attack and you have to ride through it somehow. And expecting yourself to do it is very difficult. If you have the concept of a higher power, something else that you can believe in to kind of uh, detract you and get strength from, that's good too. Um, 
just something, but not willpower. I mean, this is where I think that people who say you just got to stop don't really understand the power of addiction. Um, uh, you know, you're doing a podcast now to help people. This is essentially, where is that coming from? But an intuitive knowing that we have to be there for each other when we're suffering in this way. So, you know, as a physician, knowing that this exists is a way of knowing there's support out there, you know? you may not pick up the phone and talk to the person right away, but there's something that you're getting. It's like a, almost like a surrender to help outside of myself because I can't do it myself. Yeah. You just constantly say that with addiction. You can't. And I think that's why it's so important to talk about things like food addiction, binge eating disorder, yeah, all that stuff, because they're so, they're things that are generally so filled with shame that especially as physicians, we often yeah. don't want to reach out because we feel we shouldn't be having this behavior. Yeah. The more yeah. we talk about it and the more we make it normal that actually lots of physicians struggle with these things. Yes. The easier yes. it is then to, to get help that you might need. Yes. And then the more help you get and truly absorb, uh, the stronger you become. Mm-hmm. Like, like you really do get better. And it's not because you are getting better, but because you're relying on maybe more lateral as opposed to me, my, my willpower, but more of a lateral, I'm getting the help here. And that, that it, it, it's that, you know, you're, you're at the weakest link when you're relying on your willpower frontal lobe, but now you're getting um, help elsewhere and that strengthens that weak link. But it, it means admitting that I, as a female physician, am at times not independent and no matter how smart I am, I can't beat this because it's got nothing to do with intelligence. Um, and so there's a little bit of a, a, you know, ego bruising, which we call in the addiction world, surrender, uh, right-sizing the ego. Like we don't have a problem with that concept, but doctors don't like that. So yeah, that's your that's job. That's your job. <laughs> yeah. You know, like we feel we should be able to, like, we should have the knowledge, even though I would like yeah. to point out our classic medical school hasn't actually given us knowledge other than no like i'm sure some programs are shifting now but really most of us were taught just to eat less exercise more and you'll be fine yes which we know actually doesn't work yes um yeah. and you know, yet I, as physicians we think that that should have worked for us right and you know i i want to say that um the other thing that i wanted to say maybe this is the fourth point is that it is a progressive condition and that 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 philosophy of uh eat less and exercise more may well have worked early, early, early stages. But after a certain point, uh, it no longer works because it's like with a, you know, the alcoholic doesn't become an alcoholic right away that, you know, it's over the, over time of drinking a little bit too much and a little too often and a little bit too many times during stress and it develops, it develops. And so they might've been able to control their drinking when they were in their teens, but they can't anymore or twenties, but you know, at the age of 55, no. And similarly with smoking and any other drug, including food, you know, the, the diet may well have worked when you were 16 or 18, but now hormonally things have changed. We know that insulin and, and uh, uh, you know, all of that can drive hunger in and of itself outside of this whole addiction piece. Um, and that's working against you in a way that it didn't when you were younger. So um, uh, when we understand the next thing, which is that this is a chronic progressive condition where I might've been able to get away with eating uh, uh, popcorn when I was in my twenties, but not sugar. Now that's out too. Like the, the list of uh, trigger foods seems to, especially, especially uh, in uh, menopausal and post um, grow seems to grow 
and and you know that's an interesting phenomena in and of itself it's probably psychological uh, as well like in terms of operant conditioning and ways that you've um um used foods i mean initially you know i said that it's the physiological i put the food in and it drives the craving at a certain point even eat, a person can eat carrots too much they can start just the, the actual eating disorder piece becomes intermingled um, so that even eating healthy food but too much can be a problem so, so that a food addiction where it may have started as sugar in early stages and flour then over time um, becomes amounts of food behaviors around food and then uh, to the point where you know it, it's 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 very muddled and then it's really hard to tell the difference between uh, eating disorder there's uh, some research that's been su suggested. Um, it's all speculative, though. Um, uh, Carolyn Davis at York University did some work. Um, she's still doing some work, but I, her publications were a few years ago, saying that maybe eating disorders and binge eating is the first phase, which then over time develops into food addiction. So that it could actually be part of the same continuum. Yeah, which is yeah. interesting. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, what we were just talking about fits with this you often hear people who are eating lower carb and things feel really good and then they yes. notice that there's certain low carb foods that they have to yes. deal with like nuts and cheese would be your your classic ones but yes. that kind of the craving and obsession and difficulty to con control can kind of transfer to what you would normally not think of as a processed food Yes, that's right. And, and see, that's actually an example. Like the paleo and the uh, keto uh, working for a lot of people because it, even if they're food addicts, they're probably earlier stage and it works. But then what, what trips up people, and this is what I cringe when I see, because I think those food plans are great for the, the, the larger population because I don't think everybody's end stage food addiction. So, I, I mean, if everybody followed one of those two plans, or just low carb, I would be like, this is great. We, so many people won't progress onwards into the uh, uh, you know, deeper levels of food addiction. But what happens is, is that even in those plans, there's those, those um, well, like the nuts and the, there's the little things that trip people up. And it's those protein bars and those keto bars and those ways to cheat somehow so that you think yeah. you're having a dessert and you know, it's, it may be uh, caloric friendly and insulin friendly, but it's not food addiction friendly. And it's then it trips the person, and now they've now they've moved into a, a, a deeper level of food addiction. If we could stop that, I think we'd be in great shape. Yeah, and I often talk about that where, uh, you know, if if when you switch to lower carb eating, if you're constantly trying to replace those higher carb foods, yes, it, it runs you into trouble with volume and and your brain never figures out the things it needs to about why you're eating those foods in the first well, place it's, it's, it's probably that food addict in you trying to talk you into it yeah right because otherwise you'd be going it's good i'm good with this food but there's yeah. something that's saying nah, let's try to make this a little more and that's that's that little weaselly mind that cunning mind in the back yeah yeah, absolutely. And I think I like to think of if you do use sweeteners and stuff, using them as a tool in isolated situations. Yes. Not as yeah. a daily, um, like if you want a birthday cake, have a birthday cake with some sweetener, uh -huh. you know, infrequently, right? Instead of every day having dessert that's artificially sweetened. And then if you recognize that that's starting to happen, that's a trigger. 
And you know, another thing that we use in terms of practical practicalities. Now, here's here's where we're getting into you know a, a deeper level of food addiction. So my suggestions may sound offensive to people. Um, now, so I've already said no sugar, no flour. Um, I um, you know being being watchful of your thoughts. Um, if you find that th your thoughts are becoming intrusive, even though you're eating well, um, the next step in the food addiction uh, platform would be you got to be talking to somebody about your food, not how I feel about it, but this is what I'm going to eat today, and, and this is what I think about today. It's like a food coach, a food buddy. In in the in the addiction world, we we uh, we actually you know in the twelve step program we, we call it a sponsor. It doesn't have to be in that in that program, but somebody where you say. I'm, I'm accountable. Yeah, I might be using my, my fitness pal, pal or something to write it out, but I have to tell somebody so that they can say, hey, Siobhan, you know what? You, you, you've had cake artificially sweetened three times this week. Like, what's with that picture? And you're going to diminish that. You're going to deny that and say, yeah, but it's, you know, so-and-so's birthday and so-and-so, et cetera, et cetera. But it's that's a reason. Yeah, exactly. And somebody else will um, spot that. And then you have that conversation. So you kind of catch it. So the next stage would be you start talking about your food, which is highly offensive to people. I find e even my food, I do that actually, I do tell somebody what I eat every day, but it always feels a bit like um, it's private. It's, it's almost like, this is going to sound crazy, but it's almost like telling somebody what my sexual practice is. I don't want you to know what I eat every day, but, but something about this uh, nips any secret addictive thinking in the butt, you know? So Do you think that not wanting to share what we eat is just part of the same, the same part of that brain? Like, yeah, I think so. If you keep it secret so. and yeah, flip stuff yeah. in. I do. I absolutely do. Yeah. <laughs> but you're right too. Like food is such an interesting element in that it's from a very young age, like as a toddler, it's sort of the first place we learn we can exert control. Yeah. And so we're very sensitive to other people uh, trying to control us or yeah. exerting control over that. Yes. Yes. Um, that's great. But sometimes yeah. it's needed. It's sometimes it's needed. Yeah. Yeah. Like the thinking, you know, a lot of people, okay, so I can't eat sugar. I can't eat flour. I have to be careful with the nuts. What the heck do I eat? And how bland and gray is my life going to be? If oh, I, but yeah, but you know what, that, that that's where, um, I, uh, I, well, first of all, I want to say that, that that's a real sign of how we've normalized that kind of food, you know, mm -hmm. cake and, and muffins as, as being normal food. But anybody who um, has stopped that stuff over a period of time, you have to get through that hump, that, that three week, four week thing. And, and, you know, probably it's more like a few months before you really enjoy real food again. So, uh, you know, eating, eating Brussels sprouts uh, and cauliflower is, is, not bland in the least once you've got that taste bud retrained back to normal and I, I i i would defy anybody who's in the keto movement and following it the way that it's supposed to to say are you enjoying your you're not enjoying your food or i'm not sure if i'm saying this right but uh, they would say of course i'm enjoying my food i love my food and uh, if it's if it's bland it would be uh um my guess is that you're probably avoiding fats and just you're cutting out sugar and now you're avoiding fats because fats make things very tasty. Um, or you, uh, you may still be having something that's hijacking the sugar pathway, which could be sweetener. Interesting. Yeah. And I like to think, you know, like definitely I was one of those people when I first got told maybe you should cut out bread and I was like, hold, 
sorry, what? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I know. How, how does that work? I don't understand. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, um, but now, like when I think of the vast majority of bread, it really, it's actually the bland food. So is pasta, uh -huh. like, you know, pasta, I'd have no interest in eating pasta because it just seems so bland compared to the foods yeah. that I sugar however i think that like just i think because of what sugar is and what it does to our brains yeah my brain hasn't gotten to the point where it's bland <laughs> uh-huh uh -huh. well the, the sugar isn't bland but um if yeah. you if you remove it it will then unblandize everything else totally. it, it makes things bland yeah you know what's interesting um like when i was earlier on in lower carb uh, i was eating like a salad made with raw cabbage i'm like this cabbage is sweet uh like i never would have thought cabbage is a sweet but it actually truly is a sweet vegetable wow but i think yeah. when you're eating sugar on the reg on a regular basis yeah you don't have the capacity because it's just you know, can't taste that because it's so exactly. different from full out sugar yes exactly yeah uh and uh, let me just finish with uh, one more thing uh, mm -hmm. about the about the uh, uh, practicality, the world of um, uh, you know how to live and with this um, is that if a person is really end stage, now this is potentially also going to sound really offensive, but um, not only do you necessarily have to speak to somebody, but some people will even go to, as far as to weigh their food and measure their food because you mentioned it yourself, you might be eating too much of good foods and. Um, uh, if you want to say, look, I do want to be able to eat some nuts once in a while, but I'll have a contained amount. It's actually measured as, you know, I don't know, uh, um, a few teaspoons or something like that. Um, that that uh, that helps too, and and that may a person may have to get to that point. So so that they may say, why would I do something like that? Because you know that really shows I have no control. But the point is, is once you've done that, then your mind is free to not have to make that decision at all you know you're not you, you just do it and that's it and i'm now thinking about something else yeah that power like, of pre-planning yes the pre exactly the pre-planning yeah yeah that's a good way to put that's it. really important regardless if you think you have food addiction or not mm -hmm. planning your food actually makes the rest of the following day simpler because you don't have to think all that stuff like how much and what and exactly and uh, through all those dangerous times of when you're a little bit extra hungry or or yeah upset or yeah exactly yeah, tired at the end of the day yeah. um any other last minute tips that you'd want to pass on um uh let me see i, I really wanted to just uh, talk about the actual living with it and how to deal with it um no maybe i'll just say that all of this sounds like a lot of work um but once once a person really gets this is this this program, this way of thinking fits me. Um, and so now you have a sort of programmed way that you're going to behave around your food. Once you get over that, the next major piece is going to be how to deal with it socially. Like how are you going to present yourself and eat the way you want to eat, um, you know, out in there in the world, which is, you're not going to look normal to them. Um, but once you can if you could, that's going to be the next major front. And that, that would be a podcast in and of itself. I was going to say, we can always have you back and talk more about the, how do you live with it? Yeah. How do you live? How do you live with it with other people? Oh my yeah. gosh. Because it's a big trigger. But what I'd like to end with here today is that um, if you can get, uh, accept all of this and not fight it, um, 
there really is a, a, a level of peace and contentment around food and around, um, um, I, I mean, I used to be terrified of food and food behaviors, afraid of myself. Now it's just a part of, you know, it's a bit like, well, I've got arthritis, so I've got to do extra exercises, but that's, I don't have arthritis, but just, you know, this is what I do with this condition. And then the rest of the t my life is, you know, free of that condition. And that's the same here. So it's not like living a life of deprivation and extra hard work. We have to prepare your food all the time on Saturday and Sunday. It's actually like, it's just part of the day. And, uh, you know, we walk free um, of, of the uh, addic addiction um, manifestation. It's still there, but it's dormant. It can be dormant and you can actually enjoy and love your food and move on with the rest of your life. Yeah. That's an excellent spot to end. Can you let people know where they can find you? Yeah. So the, any of what I've talked about is in my book, uh, Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction, which can be got at Amazon. Please, please check it out. Um, I have a Facebook page now um, that's called um, a support group called I'm Sweet Enough, Sugar Free for Life. And please uh, join or have your patients join. Um, it's uh, it's a great group. It's a, a, an alive group of people who are meaning that there are actually people responding and whatnot um, about uh, uh, you know some people are using it to de declare what they're eating. Other people are using it to say I'm having a problem. What would you do in this circumstance? Um, that sort of thing. I have a a website called addictionsunplugged.com which uh, has a lot of stuff, and I have a YouTube just under Vera Tarman that has lots of videos about. Uh, podcasts and uh shows and whatever because i've talked about this endlessly excellent it's good okay. that you do great thanks so much for joining me vera yeah thank you thank you all right that was packed with excellent information i always love talking to dr tarman i think she's a wealth of information about addictions um and particularly related to food addictions uh, send any comments you have uh, at info at weight solutions for physicians. Make sure you check out Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies. Uh, if you are enjoying this podcast, please hit subscribe so you get all the new episodes delivered right to your device. And also, if you could share it or leave a review, that helps the podcast really get out there and get other people that might benefit from it. Um, to find it. Uh, I appreciate all, I know lots of you have left reviews and lots of you share it and I absolutely appreciate it. All right. Have a fantastic week, guys. We will talk to you later. Bye-bye.